Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Craig Forces. I am here with Stephanie Carvin and Philip Lagasse for our Her Majesty in Right of Pod. Stephanie, what are we talking about today? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just so tired. We've duct taped Stephanie to her chair. <laughs> and I'm being forced to learn. I am like the Eliza Doolittle of the Constitution. If Eliza Doolittle was from Oshawa and was really, really jet lagged. So, um, yeah. So what we're going to talk about today. But like That kind of makes Philly Michael Caine in the sort of 1980s adoption of that. Does that make you the other guy? Yeah, I don't there know. There's the Professor Henry Higgins and then his like jerk friend. Okay, <laughs> this is going downhill. Um, so <laughs> we're going to basically go from where we left off last week. And where we left off was we have a constitution. So I'm assuming all of our problems are solved, right? We have a constitution if you can find it. Now, um, so we have an arrangement, right? We have an arrangement that constitutes the British North American colonies into a single confederated entity, a dominion called Canada, that gives that dominion local autonomy within a broader empire. Uh, it might be ambitious at this point to call that a constitution in a modern context. So we have a, a statute of the imperial parliament that constitutes institutions within the new confederated Canada that includes both federal and provincial levels of government, legislature at the provincial level, federal parliament at the federal level. There's executives at both levels. There's a judiciary. It has all the trappings of a state, but it's not really a state yet. Rather, it's a self-governing dominion within the British Empire. Did you just walk me through two episodes worth of stuff to tell me we didn't have a constitution in 1867? Yeah, well, so we had the British North America Act of 1867. So we wouldn't have called that the Constitution. The Constitution Act of 1867 is a rebranding of the British North America Act. I right? feel so, like everything is a lie. Well, you know, so constitutions is a sort of thing you associate with a self-governing state, not just a, an autonomous region within a broader empire, right? So the, the, the leftover question, Stephanie, and this is the question you're asking, is how did we go to a state both in terms of how we conceive ourselves, but also a state in relation to the standards of international law. And that's a story that takes us into the early 20th century. Right. So, I mean, if we just do a quick like recap of where we've come, basically there were some kings, <laughs> and then there were the ministers, and then there were some powers, and some wars were in there too, and then, bam, responsible government. No, we've basically, this is the story of how we've gone from absolute rulers to responsible government. Right. So we had, we started with a, an absolute monarch who enjoys his prerogative, which Phil is, you know, a big prerogative fanboy, and uh, which is an absolute f a power. That's going to be, we oh, need to I sell like that. An absolute power, Craig. That's it's an, keep, keep going it's going an absolute like, power. It's an absolute oh, power. God. But in the contest between the monarch and parliament, parliament gets the upper hand. I'm starting to sweat, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> and asserts this doctrine of parliamentary supremacy, yeah, the Bill of Rights of 1689, which uh, essentially recognizes, in my view, or codifies in the views of others, the idea that essentially the, the monarch persists at the will of the parliament, including the, the monarch's powers exist at the will of that parliament. It can be displaced by parliamentary statute. All right, so that's that framework that exists in the United Kingdom context, that uh, along with this idea that, minister, that ministers will provide advice to the monarch as to how that prerogative should be exercised, and then those ministers are in the House of Commons and have to have its support, that notion, which we would call responsible government, that is imported to the colonial framework by the 1840s, 1850s in Canada, pre-Confederation, all right? Uh, and then we have, for political reasons, a confederation of the remaining colonies in British North America to constitute this entity known as Canada. That's the short form. Right. And one thing to note is, as we were discussing last time, uh, Crown Authority in a North American, British North American context is slightly different. And one thing to note, particularly in light of uh, the Canadian cases, we are a, dom a dominion at the time under the crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland uh, with a constitution similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom. So the story now is going to have to be, or one would think it would be going forward, how does that dominion under the crown of the United Kingdom uh, eventually emerge and become an independent state uh, under the sovereign authority of the Crown of Canada. Okay, right. So if I'm going to like bring this to human speak, I would basically describe this as, what is the unfinished business of the Constitution slash not Constitution? You're self-governing, so you can pass laws, but if those laws are not in keeping with the laws of the Imperial Parliament, then they're invalid. So if our laws, so if the Canadian government back in the day had passed a law and it didn't work with what the Brits 
had passed, our law would be invalid. Right. Yeah. There's, there's two manifestations. Well, there's two manifestations of that. So, so if the federal parliament, so pre sort of 1931, if the federal parliament from 1865 forward, so the the pre-confederation colonies, and then the federal parliament after 1867, if they had passed a law that was inconsistent with an imperial statute under the Colonial Laws Validity Act of 1865, it would be null and of no effect. Right. So you could not have a colonial law that. Uh, was inconsistent with an imperial law. So was that's, there ever an example of that? Uh, there were certainly in other jurisdictions. I think in Australia, help me here, Phil, but in Australia, the Colonial Laws and Validity Act actually persisted in some Australian states right into the 1980s. Right, because the, the, one of the laws that we're going to look at, the Statute of Westminster, was not fully uh, promulgated in Australia until later than Canada. So you, you ended up having this in a number of instances. Yeah, and so you would have, and I can't think of an example in a Canadian context, but it were, would be possible, at least in principle, for some imperial law that governed a particular area, if it ran up against a colonial law that was inconsistent, then then the colonial law would be subordinated. It would it would be of null and no effect. The other aspect, though, of, of this prospect of sort of imperial governance was the reserve and disallowance power that was exercised by the effectively the imperial cabinet. So uh, under the existing Constitution Act of 1867, so the British North America Act, there is still a provision which says that the governor general can reserve for her queen's consideration and practice cabinet in the UK, uh, the a bill that's passed by the federal parliament, and, and, there's, and, and so they can effectively deny royal assent. Uh, and there's also the prospect of essentially repeal, which we would call uh, disallowance of a federal statute. That is also reflected, by the way, in the patterns between the province and the feds. There's still a law in the books in the, the British North America Act that says the feds can both uh, reserve uh, in terms of royal assent to a provincial law and disallow a provincial law. And we talked about this last time in relation to some of the discussion and debate about Bill 21 in Quebec. And actually, that federal power was used repeatedly. In fact, uh, reservation was used about 112 times up until the 1940s and uh, disallowance was used about 80 times up until, well, 1960, there was an effort to use it, but the provincial statute, that was a statute of Alberta, I believe, ultimately got royal assent. So, sorry, Still in the books, though. Right. So just to be clear, um, there is a policy whereby our Not laws- a policy. No, sorry. But there's a, a thing yes. where, I'm going to use that technical term, thing. There's a thing where a law. our laws <laughs> cannot conflict with Britain. Right. So that's. So, but what's the difference between that and disallowance? Different thing. Yeah. So, I mean. Oh, of course it, it is. In the case of reservation and disallowance, where, where you, what you have is a situation where the governor general acting as a representative of the British government could, on uh, the, the uh, orders of the British cabinet, reserve uh, legislation for the British cabinet's consideration. And if they chose to disallow it, then they could. That's separate and distinct from this question of colonial uh, validity of laws. And if under the British legislation of the Colonial Law Validities Act, if a, a law ran counter to uh, imperial legislation, then it could be invalidated. So it was two different ways, basically, to prevent Canada uh, from from legislating on its own for, in certain areas. The other piece of the puzzle uh, is control over foreign policy and defense policy, so we're still very much seen as a colony. And clear manifestation of that is in the First World War, Canada didn't declare war. The British Crown declared war for all of us, and we didn't really have a say in it. Uh, and that's going to have to evolve. And finally, getting back... As well as, uh, not just that, but the also the, the war in South Africa as well. Right. I mean, the Boer War is a bit more complicated, but it's even the fact that you can get get formally declared war for by another country. Uh, but ultimately, in this context, it was the empire, so it made sense. So at this point, we can say 1867, in the immediate period afterwards, Canada has the ability to make laws, but it's not really autonomous. Correct. I right. got something right. <laughs> Yeah, it's correct. That's Where's a, my cookie? Correct, a correct statement, right? So, <laughs> as a, as a legislative <laughs> entity, first time in this entire episode, Canada is subordinated serious. to the imperial parliament, right? Right. And so, when we talked about parliamentary supremacy, recall that parliamentary supremacy means that the legislature is supposed to be supreme over all other powers in the state. Well, that's not true for a colony, right? Because we're subordinated to another entity. In this case, the imperial parliament through the Colonial Laws Validity Act and the colon and the imperial executive through the powers of reservation and disallowance. Okay, so question. Um, you know, one of the famous, you know, one of the things you learn in grade 10 history is Sir Johnny MacDonald said, you know, a British subject, I was born, a British subject, I will die. Why did we go from that kind of pledge of loyalty to Britain to 
wanting to become autonomous, and how did we get there? Well, I think this is a key point, that the very fact that we speak about autonomy at this point is that we weren't speaking about independence. Unlike, uh, say, our American cousins. Right. I mean, I think it's very important to recognize that in 1867, there was no desire to be an independent state. We wanted to be part of the British Empire. Uh, we wanted to be a dominion of the British Empire. We wanted to be a self-governing colony, but there was no question that we would cease to be under the British crown, nor that we wouldn't be part of the British Empire and dominion of that empire. That changes with the First World War, where suddenly... Did it really take that long? Yeah, I mean, the, the imperial sentiment was very strong, and you have to bear in mind Outside as well. Of Quebec. Yeah, bear in mind as well that most immigrants coming to Canada were, were from the British Isles as well. I mean, this is at this time. So we're really still seen as part of a larger British Empire and, and with, with pride in that, which is part of the reason that there's actually enthusiasm in, in taking part in the Great War. Uh, but the, except in Quebec. Well, except in Quebec. And the, the, the aftermath of that, namely excluding Quebec from cabinet during the war, conscription, and uh, the, the split that, that it created in the country. Wait, are you saying that provincial exclusion in a cabinet was a thing? It wasn't a very bad thing, one that we don't want to repeat. <laughs> but it actually, no, you, you did have Anglophone ministers from Quebec, just to be clear. Okay. So, no. Uh, it was more an exclusion of French Canadians, right, from government, which is a, a bigger deal. But then from there, in the Liberal Party in particular, liberals who had refused to take part in that endeavor of the, uh, the unified cabinet uh, begin striving for national autonomy, not independence, because they know that there's still enough imperial sentiment in Canada that you can't get there. But is this you, Sir Wilfrid Laurier? No, this is, I would say, William Law Mackenzie King that was the champion of this. Interesting, right? okay. Yeah. So King's project and a lot of what we're going to discuss in terms of post-First post World War is one of our craftiest uh, constitutional actors in Canadian history, William Lon Mackenzie King, who uses Parliament, the Crown, and various other means at his disposal to forward his uh, agenda of autonomy. And that's really uh, uh, the story, I would argue, of, of the Liberal Party under King, and really to some extent all the way to under Trudeau, is uh, Pierre Trudeau, that is, the journey from autonomy to independence, which is ultimately realized uh, by Pierre Trudeau. Okay, so presumably there was a couple steps that he took. Would it make sense to go through those now? Yeah. Yes. So there's a political context to this that, that also resonates in terms of international law. So, I mean, the, the Heritage Minute image here is of Canada paying the price in blood in the First World War. Uh, for the first time, you have a Canadian army uh, commanded by a Canadian general acting as Canadians, uh, and suffering grievous losses in the First World War. And then in the aftermath, in the Versailles Settlement, you have Canada as an independent actor on the international stage becoming a party to the is Versailles the first time? Treaty. Uh, effectively, it is. Uh, well, I mean, so we would have signed, we would have been participants in some of the bilateral treaties, say, with the United States. But here we were acting uh, as... Uh, essentially, a, a quasi-autonomous actor. I mean, we're I want to say the autonomous. Table with a flag on it. I, I would. I don't know. I don't know if we were literally there with the flag. And even that flag still had the Union Jack on it. Right. So I mean, everything being relative, it's in the Americans' eyes, and I think this was part of the tension. It's never it, easy with it, you guys, is it? No, but in the eyes of a lot of people, you know, they they viewed this with suspicion that we were still ultimately a colony, and that the UK was still calling the shots. So it was just a proxy for the United Kingdom, and they were doubling their vote, right? Exactly. So it took us time to actually demonstrate to everybody, and this will be material when I would argue the, the key moment is the declaration of the Second World War, but there's a lot that has to happen. We, between we waited a whole week. Yes, right. well, and that's a key matter, and not only did we wait a week, but the king was acting on the advice of his Canadian ministers and not on the advice of his British ministers to declare war for Canada. Okay, but we're getting ahead that of ourselves it. again. So, so we're, so, we're so sitting now here, we're party, 1919 yeah, Paris Peace Conference. Paris Peace Conference, and we become part of the League of Nations. Right. Canada becomes part of the League of Nations. And that works. And, and we were the most adamant dominion uh, in the Paris peace process about being very prickly about our uh, being perceived as autonomous relative to the British. Right. So that, that sort of inherent prickiness that we associate with Canada in relation to the United States was really something honed in our relationship with the United Kingdom. Right, and so this really is an outgrowth of the First World War, and now we have a certain stature on the international stage. Now, I would say, as an international lawyer, that at least as we would apply the modern conception of independence in international law, what it is to be a state, we would not yet be truly a state, because we're not quite there yet, because we have this constitutional framework that allows overrides of the sort we just described, whether it's Colonial Laws Validity Act or this Reservation Disallowance Power, 
nor are we necessarily perceived as constitutionally independent per se, right? And so there's still the sort of residue of colonial status that would probably be an impediment to being considered truly independent in international law. So we, we kind of have this hybridized status now. We're at the table in international relations, but we still have the features of a colony uh, at the higher level, at least. And even domestically, if you were to tell people that we were an independent state, you would get a massive amount of pushback. This is still a time when, certainly amongst the Tories, this, they're an imperial party, and they're, they're very clear about that. So the idea that we would cease being part of the British Empire was not something that, that made the standings at that point. It and there's still time. a number of people who think that today. I wouldn't say a number of people. I think there's a number of cranks. Uh, <laughs> oh, but, uh, they're all on Twitter. <laughs> you know, uh, and, you know, it depends on how you interpret certain things. They're messing things. up my mentions. Yeah, but... Probably uh, more yours. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that some people are still very dedicated to the fact that we are under uh, the British monarchy. Okay, we'll so let's, that. let's keep moving towards autonomy then. Okay. So basically we are at... Um, you know, we're now in the League of Nations, we're showing up, what comes next? So next is the 1926 Imperial Conference. And right. what, what's Sounds riveting. Yeah, what's important here is this is constitutionally important, but also practically important. So practically important when it comes to foreign affairs, defense, and the exercise of those prerogatives related to that, the government in Canada, the ministers in Canada, begin to be able to do so with autonomy. So you have the uh, an autonomous foreign policy, you can now sign treaties on your own, and you the, the principle that you could declare war on your own, uh, independent of the UK, has has been planted. That seed has been planted. Why did that come about? Was it was this something that Australia was also going for? No, other we, colonies. We were really the, at the vanguard of, of the autonomy movement at that time. The That's other the other dominions were not. Uh, it was it's us in South Africa and the Irish. I mean, the Irish. It's, it's a whole other issue. Yeah. But, uh, but it's us in <laughs> so South Africa. Us South Africa and the Irish. Perhaps not by accident. The Irish also not really keen on being dragged into wars um, and having their own kind of vision of, of subjugation and French Canadians having their own vision of it. Uh, but equally important, I think constitutionally this is a key point, is 1926 begins the principle that the crown is divisible. And the, the divisibility of the crown happens in a practical sense. Namely, the crown begins acting for Canada on the advice of Canadian ministers alone. So conceptually, the crown begins to divide or multiply. And, and, right. And, and that's true even in terms of the appointment of the governor general, right? So up until 1926, the governor general is appointed by the queen at the behest of the, or the king at the behest of the British cabinet. After 1926, the expectation is the the entities that will advise on the appointment of the governor general will be, the, in this case, the Canadian ministers. And so that gives them a certain prominence in terms of the selection of the governor general. That doesn't mean by this point, by the way, the governor general is itself, himself, because they were all he at that time, uh, Canadian. There was kind of a murky understanding of citizenship anyway. But nevertheless, in terms of who's going to advise the king on appointments, it's going to be the Canadian ministers. And that goes to your point about dividing division of the king, right? So now you've got Canadian ministers advising the king directly. Yep. Can I just ask, what was driving that? We're still dealing with the time of Mackenzie King's government. So he, Mackenzie King's falls briefly around the King Bing affair, as you might recall, which is another reason why King seeks to extract his revenge on the British aristocrats. Uh, who Kate, serve do you wanna, as, Should we teach us like a bit of a side? Because everyone's like, ooh, King Bing affair. Anytime like there's something to do with... Oh, last week or the week before oh, when there was God. a prospect of a seriously hung parliament. Right? Yeah, so can you um, maybe just... Can we just do like a quick side sure. track on that? Yeah, so very briefly, uh, in 1925... It's got a nice ring to it. Yeah, William and Mackenzie King's liberals uh, do not win the most seats, but they are still the government, and the Prime Minister remains Prime Minister until he resigns or is dismissed, and therefore King decides to remain Prime Minister and to govern with the, uh, the help of the Progressive Party. Bing, the Governor General, not too impressed with King's decision. He finds it kind of uncouth, and he believes that Arthur Means Conservatives should actually be the government. Uh, and he's determined in his mind that if ever the King government uh, falls, that he will call upon Meehan. So King ultimately does succumb to a vote of no confidence. He goes to see Lord Bing, 
Bing requests a dissolution. Uh, Bing declines the request, calls on Mian. Mian is not able to make it work, and we're back in an election where Kim comes back with a majority. The reason it was a controversial issue, is the, the question was, did, did Bing actually have the discretion to refuse uh, the request to dissolve? And ultimately, he demonstrated that he did, but it did divide constitutional scholars in Canada, most notably uh, Forsey and Dawson. So you, you have the emergence. This is a different Forsey's. Uh, Not 4Cs, 4C. 4C. 4C, okay. Yeah, so Eugene 4C. Oh, Eugene 4C, the famous, yes, yeah, the so, famous scholar, yeah. So there is, there is actually uh, quite a bit of uh, difference of opinion at the time on co constitutional scholars about what, what occurred at that point. But the underlying point is for the Constitution is twofold. First, a prime minister can continue to govern even if they don't win the most seats. And secondly, the Crown does retain the discretion to decline a request for dissolution and call upon somebody else within a single parliament. The one caveat to that, yeah, a fresh parliament. Right, and so, but so even that's like fuzzy, right? Like, is it is it six months? Is it nine months? You know, it's that that's where it gets wishy washy. Right. But you're right; it at some point it's gone on long enough, and you got to go back to right. the people. So, because the facts on this are that the parliament had just reconstituted itself; it just been summoned. It was about six months after that I believe that the Mackenzie King government fell, and by fell we mean that there was no longer. A, confidence in the House of Commons. Why? Because the progressives no longer supported the, the minority of members who, who were liberals, and so you had a vote of non-confidence. And therefore, King faced a choice, seek dissolution or resign and ask the Governor General to appoint a new Prime Minister who could command the confidence of the House of Commons. He sought a dissolution, as Phil suggested, the Governor General declined. The distinguishing variable when Forsey describes it is, look, this was a, this was a very new parliament. They'd all, only come back from the people, you know, whatever, six months before, whatever it was. This decision by the Governor General would have been progressively more Ill illegitimate the further out from an election you had been because the expectation was with a, with a stale parliament, you would return the question to the people rather than asking that same parliament to try to throw up another leader who could command the confidence uh, of a majority of voices. So, right. so and, four C's, and, so 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 four C, not four C's. <laughs> is four C. I'm getting all confused. So, but uh, Eugene Forsey's argument is the fact that there's a time limit. Singular version. Right. There's well, a time limit on the amount of when you actually go to the other party for. And, and this is also based on uh, on uh, a letter, a Senex letter to the to the Times in the UK by the Queen's or the King's private secretary at the time, kind of hinting up around the norms around that or the customs around when you would uh, accept it. Now the the opposite. View, the, the Dawson school of view was ultimately that, you know, to the extent possible, the Crown shouldn't exercise this type of discretion. That if the electorate could make the decision, then the electorate should, should go for it. And that, you know, ultimately, uh, Governor General always takes a bit of a risk when they read tea leaves. And in this case, King or Bing, I would say, kind of made the wrong call because Maine ultimately wasn't able to to pull it together. So even though constitutionally it's upheld as as an important principle that dissolution can be uh, can be denied for Bing in particular, it had a lasting impact on King's uh, view of the office of Governor General and right. Really, so this is bringing us back yeah. to the idea of autonomy because yeah. was Bing actually appointed by the British? He, he, he was. He was the yeah. British cabinet. Right? Yeah, and so right. this it's it's still more fuel on the on the flame of autonomy for the liberals and for King in particular thinking, you know what, like it's time to settle some of this. Right. Yeah. Okay. No. So, so just, just an aside though, I, I'm, I'm on team 4C on this one, right? So I think that parliament so is in our system. So is on team 4C. Right, exactly. Okay. So parliament is sovereign in our system, not the people, right? And so if parliament is properly constituted and it's a relatively fresh parliament, the expectation should be that it's up to parliament to decide who commands confidence of it. And so to keep throwing it back to the people in a plebiscite or citry sort of way, is, I think it does violence to the idea that we're a, a system of parliamentary governance and not of uh, an American style, the people are sovereign and delegate their power to, to a parliament as opposed to a parliament being inherently sovereign. Yeah, and my, my support is largely with the Dawson School on this particular issue. Oh, it's going to be like a whole episode fight. Not, not because I disagree with Craig. My, my point is simply, I think the 4C School has fed delusions amongst people about how much discretion governors general have in our system, that they're just kind of these autonomous actors that can run around and deny prime ministers things you know, if warranted. And it's it, even today in the news, we're talking about uh, the prime minister going to see the GG to, to, to tell her he wants to form a government as if 
Her Excellency has any say in the matter, right? But it's kind of fed this idea that... As if there's actually a change in government. Well, this is it. I mean, it's... Look, it's just a nice excuse for everyone to have some cake. (laughs) <laughs> that too, but I mean, it's. Uh, I think the it the the forces sometimes pushed it a little bit, p- giving the governor general more discretion than they actually have in a lot of cases, and uh, this ended up having follow-on effects in the 2008 prorogation discussion, which we'll get to in a future episode. Can't wait! Can't wait! <laughs> You're so excited! Uh, I'm so excited! I'm oh, just right. I can't contain so, myself. But okay, so Statue of Westminster, right? So uh, that's so what's we, next. Five years later, Statue of Westminster, yeah. and, and it's Westminster, not West, not Westminster. I, I never understood that, but it, I, I, I know that the the particular region in London is spelt that way. Westminster. I'd like, to, I'd like to actually know why that is, but I don't know. But yes, you're right. It doesn't just have to that second upset eye. Upset foreigners. <laughs> yes. Right. So the time has come to provide the Dominions not only with uh, executive autonomy over advising the the Crown and the Crown's prerogatives, but also to ensure that uh, Canada has legislative autonomy from the Imperial Parliament. This is done through the Statute of Westminster. The Statute of Westminster does a number of things. One of those is it it, uh, ends the Colonial Validities Law Act and replaces it with a new uh, law, the Statute of Westminster, that says that the, the Imperial Parliament will be able to legislate for Canada on the request and consent of the Canadian government, not the Canadian Parliament. It's important to note that distinction of the, the cabinet, uh, the federal cabinet. Um, so cabinet could send a letter to Britain saying, what up with this? Yeah, well, this and this becomes very controversial leading up to the patriation uh, of the Canadian Constitution, and the Supreme Court of Canada has to get involved to decide what are the conventions around when the federal cabinet can can request and consent to the the Imperial Parliament legislating for us. Ultimately, in the patriation case, it's decided that there are conventions around consulting with the provinces to do so. But uh, it's important to note that it is the the cabinet that's that's making this request and offering its consent. As well, by the way, the cabinet being the, 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 fa- the federal cabinet of the Canada. Federal. Well, yeah, no, but uh, being basically uh, the executive branch of the ruling party. So well, not the executive, pro- uh, could you the executive differ- branch of the state of the yeah. state, yeah. Who, which is comprised of MPs from the ruling party. Yeah, effectively. effectively. So I'm just trying to differentiate from, you know, because I'm trying to be helpful to no, the Oshawa yeah. crowd. And, I, and, um, and I, when I give the example, the, which is actually salient to what we have today, I promise I won't get too much into it, but just to demonstrate how, how it worked in 1936. Um, so, and leading up to what happened in 1936, it's important to note the other piece. Yeah, what did happen in 1936? I will get to it. So okay. the, the Statute of Westminster also includes uh, a, an interesting preamble. And the preamble is ultimately a compromise. So as part of the meetings that led up to the Statute of Westminster, the British uh, representatives are really worried that if the Dominions start having legislative autonomy, that they'll be able to legislate uh, for themselves when it comes to matters dealing with the Crown, such as the Royal Styles and Titles and the line of succession. So they say, you know what, give us, leave control for Royal Succession and Royal Styles and Titles with us. But the Canadian representatives, namely O.D. Skelton and Ernest Lapointe, are having none of it. They, their explicit view is that, no, Canada is going to get to des- determine the royal styles and titles in its own law, and similarly when it comes to royal succession. So there's a, there's a, a, a tension, and how do they get around it? What they do is they put in the preamble that... Sumo the, wrestling. So it, it doesn't have any legal effect. <laughs> but it wasn't it, sumo wrestling. No, it wasn't sumo wrestling. But this idea that they would all together... Uh, offer their assent to changes to royal succession and the royal styles and titles. And it creates a convention whereby they all have to kind of agree on it. And, and by all, you mean the Dominions and the, dominions. And the United Kingdom. Right. right. But so, the, but so the concept of symmetry. Right. So this idea that they should all kind of be on the same page when it comes to the line of succession. Because the crown is being divided, as uh, you mentioned earlier. Well, no, it's, it's a little bit part of that, right? Because the oh, Brit- God. Why the, is this so hard? No, because the British are actually worried, and, and you again have to bear in mind that you got the South Africans there, you got the Irish there, and you got the Canadians there all looking to make trouble, right? And all trying to say that we're more autonomous. And they've already kind of now established the principle that they're advising the Crown uh, through their own ministers. So the British want to make sure that, you know, the the line of succession and the royal styles and titles are common across the Commonwealth. So that we don't end up with Bonnie Prince Charles as our monarch yeah. or the descendant who's working in some Paris cafe. Yeah. 
right? Okay. But, but the, yes, but so, so they just, you don't want to have a, a divided crown in terms of who the monarch is. Actually, is. Everyone has to agree on who right. the yeah. monarch is. But the Canadians and the South Africans are pretty adamant that, no, no, okay, that's fine. We'll agree to do this, but we're the ones who decide. And much to everybody's surprise, I would maybe say, this suddenly comes up very quickly within five years when Edward the Edward the Eighth decides a divorcee. Yes, decides he wants to marry a divorcee. So the um, both the British cabinet and in cons- consultation with the Dominion cabinet decide he's got to go. He's got to abdicate. And Parliament is not sitting in December 1936, uh, and this fits perfectly into King's plan because the uh, British Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin begins correspondence with King saying, okay, look, you've got this statute of Westminster. Why don't we just say that you're just whoever is our monarch is your monarch. It's fine. It's good. King refuses. Uh, on the advice of his uh, Undersecretary of State, Odie Skelton, and his Minister of Justice, Ernest LaPointe, he explicitly says, no, nope, no dice. We're not going to do it that way. It has to be done according to our own law. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to invoke Section 4 of the Statute of Westminster, which says that on our request and consent, you will legislate for Canada uh, His Majesty's Abdication Act of 1936, extending the abdication into Canadian law. Once the Canadian Parliament resumes the following year, then uh, an Act of Parliament, the Succession Act of 1937, is uh, passed that then provides assent of the Canadian Parliament as per the requirement okay. of, the, a lot of, of the preamble. There's a lot of process there. Um, so just to walk through. So basically, Mackenzie King, he's he's scheming away. He's scheming. I he's mean, scheming away. Which is just what, to start there. And, and it creates a great deal of controversy, and, and it's still material to what happened just this. Because Baldwin's like, hey, just come on. Baldwin and a number of imperialists in Canada, when they find out what happened, are of, of a totally different view. So um, They say we should just do what the Brits are doing. Come no, they, they, they're saying they're, their vision of the Statute of Westminster is, no, 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 the, the whole purpose of that preamble was that you didn't get to decide that. But King and Skelton and LaPointe, those that actually were in the room, did it that way for a reason. Uh, and because they, they're further advocating for Because they're, they're using this to push for Canadian autonomy. And they, they're making it very clear in December 1936 that they're not going to accept Baldwin's compromise, that they will, they will insist on having this promulgated into Canadian law. Now, when Parliament res- returns... So, when, so why did they write to the British cabinet and say, pass this law? They, because, so what it means is the UK couldn't simply pass this abdication act and have it automatically apply to Canada. Oh, they had to pass a separate law. No, they had to, in their abdication act of 1936... It, it, it is clear that this law extends into Canada. So they were forced to write that by the King Cabinet using the Statute of Westminster. The King Cabinet used Section 4 of the Statute of Westminster to request and consent that the Abdication Act of the British Parliament extend into Canadian law. So that act was then ported into Canadian law. When Parliament resumed, the Conservatives... When Canadian Parliament The Canadian resumed. Parliament resumed, the, the Conservatives were up in arms. They're, they were arguing, well, no, whoever is uh, king of the United Kingdom is automatically our, our, our king. You didn't need to do that. That was an unnecessary step. But King is saying, nope, we had to. Sorry. That's, just, that's what the Statute of Westminster did. And, and then he dropped a mic. No, but the debates are actually quite fascinating because you really have the imperialists uh, saying, what the hell are you doing? Like you're creating a separate Canadian crown and King being too coy, being like, oh no, don't worry, this is just in keeping with the Statue of Westminster. Reality is, of course that's what he was doing. And the imperialists knew it. Uh, and even the, the imperial constitutional scholars at the time, such as Kennedy, were, were not happy with this because they realized what this actually was saying, that Canada had its own law of succession. Which so why was, did the Brits go along with it? They just can be arsed? Well, because he, King... What was, choice did they have? Yeah, what, it was either that or the King government coming out and saying that Edward VIII was still our king. That, that would be interesting. And the South Africans also were going this way. The South Africans were like, yeah, for a brief period of time, if memory serves, Edward was technically still king in South Africa while not king of the United Kingdom on account of the, the games that the South Africans were playing. Mm. So it was, you have to understand it in the context of the time and, and realize that, yes, there was, it was, there was constitutional ambiguity here and King was exploiting it much as when this issue comes up again in 2013, uh, the ambiguities that are left are still exploited by both parties. So I have a question for both of you. I w- always believed that Canada got its own foreign policy policy 
1931. Am I incorrect in that? Was it actually 1926? 26 is the better date. Uh, I'd even go further. I'd say 1919, right, because of the Versailles Treaty and the... Uh, the participation by Canada in the League of Nations. Yeah, and the Chinac crisis, 1922 right, yeah. was another one. Sorry, the Chinac crisis? Yeah, well, basically, King, the famous declaration that Canada, that Parliament's going to decide when uh, Canada commits to a British war. Now, when he's saying Parliament, he's again being coy. He's basically using Parliament as uh, a shield of saying, no, no, Parliament has to decide these things. Uh, in reality, it's still a Canadian executive that's going to exercise the prerogative. But he's effectively using Parliament to say the British can't impose this decision on us. We have to ask our legislature first. So, and this is equally the same in 1926 when the King government begins the practice of bringing treaties before Parliament, even though it's not necessary to do so to ratify them. This is a practice that continues until 1966 under Pearson, but it's uh, a demonstration of... And it's back again, right? Yeah, it's back, but it's just fascinating. We'll <laughs> uh, uh, the use of Parliament by Canadian executives to further their political ends, which is another kind of great Canadian tradition. Okay, so that was a pretty interesting... I'll, I'll just go with interesting. Interesting way of figuring out how Canada got a foreign policy eventually sometime between 1926 and 1936. Um, or, or 1919, as, as you said, Craig. Um, so let's try to bring this up for the sake of everyone's sanity up to 1982, the Patriation Act, because you've already mentioned it, Phil. And, you know, I think we're hoping to get back to it in episode two. We might not get to it now until episode four. So why don't we kind of do a hop, skip, and a jump between everything that happened say, starting 1939, the de declaration of the Second World War, through to the movement to repatriate the Constitution. Okay, so why don't I start in 1939, and then I'll let Craig kind of take a few, and then I'll come back to a few other ones. Right, so, tag team Constitution. Right. So 1939, just to make it very short and brief, I think the, the key piece here is that the declaration of war f uh, for the United Kingdom is not extending to Canada. A week is way, uh, we wait a week, and then once Parliament returns and, and approves uh, the speech from the throne that involves uh, defensive measures for Canada, King then can advise the King to declare war. <laughs> Lots of Kings here. Lots of Kings. So, <laughs> so His Majesty the right. King declares war. Maybe, maybe you should <laughs> so call it, say, PM King. So the, the, prime, the Canadian King. Prime Minister, a week after the British declaration of war has, always, has already been proclaimed, uh, advises the sovereign to declare war for Canada. And during that week period, that gap, what's interesting is that you've got a bunch of American supplies kind of running into Canada and a bunch of things that were technically considered not at war during that time. So even the Americans exploit this in order to help the British cause. Uh, so the, I would argue for what it's worth, I think that's really the moment when we became a sovereign state is that that declar independent declaration of war really cements at the highest possible level of, of matters of state when we were now not just autonomous, but arguably quasi de facto independent. Yeah, I might go actually a further back in terms of this question of independence as a matter of international law. So the expectations of international law in terms of when a state is a state, you have to have a defined territory, you have to have a permanent population, you have to have an effective government, and you have to have uh, a capacity to enter into foreign relations, probably both under your own domestic fabric and also de facto a willingness on part of other states to basically tangle with you as a matter of foreign relations. Right. So it's as of 1867, we had the first three, right? It was the last one, the capacity to enter into foreign relations, which was in doubt. So as we, as we get to the Statute of Westminster, we start to get to a point where in terms of our internal legal structure, because legislation, foreign legislation does not apply in our territory without our consent, we start to have a constitutional framework where we have autonomy vis-a-vis -vis any other entity on the face of the planet. Uh, and we start to see, as of 1919, the capacity to enter into foreign relations with other states in the form of the League of Nations. So I would situate the coming of independence as a matter of international law in the 1920s, early 1930s. Um, <coughs> I, I think Phil's right that sort of the capstone to that then is the sort of the, when you get to high politics and the declaration of war is a manifestation of that capacity to enter into foreign relations. That's a good benchmark uh, in terms of evidence. But I would say that the crystallizing mo moment was probably a decade before. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree. For me, it's just like one of those keystone moments where, from more of a political science point of view, like a, a, a clear manifestation of sovereign authority, the declaration of war done on, on, in, on purely Canadian terms 
kind of cements everything else that's happened. Well, it's interesting because, Craig, you're presenting the legal view. Phil, you're presenting kind of like the more kind of symbolic political uh, view. Um, And and that's what this whole podcast is supposed to be about, right? Like you guys fighting and me like just kind of rolling (laughs) my eyes for hours. Um, So so then quickly, I mean, post-war, right? Yeah, Yeah, post-war. So it was a war. Once again, we come a party to an international treaty, a very important one, the United Nations Charter, right? right. And so, again, so you're reaffirming our statute now and in international law is, because you have to be a state to be a member of the UN, right? And so here's international recognition that we are, in fact, a state. Uh, and so that's very important in 1945. And then we have a number of events in terms of our relationship internally and also vis-a-vis the British. And so for the first time in the late 1940s, we have recognition of something known as Canadian citizenship. Up until that point... There had been sort of proto-citizenship concepts and the like, but you know the, the concept of subject of the crown was sort of the dominant um, paradigm. But we have a Canadian Citizenship Act for the first time, uh, and we also have uh, a discontinuance of the final court of appeal being the Privy Council. So the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, based in London, is no longer our final court of appeal. Instead, it becomes the Supreme Court of Canada. Can I ask one question? Right. I was a, so I lived in the UK for 10 years, and I always thought that the highest court was actually the UK House of Lords. Now called the UK Supreme Court? Now they, they've created, but like, right. yeah. So so basically, so, so why, the what, Judicial Committee of the Privy Council was the same entity reconstituted uh, and called the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council for purposes of colonial appeals. That gets back to the fact that in the colonies, the crown is the the, the overarching power, right? So the in, in that context, in terms of colonial governance, it makes sense that it would be the, the crown and council that is the the final court. Yeah, and you can and the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council is still co-located in the UK Supreme Court. It's just kitty corner to the um, Westminster Abbey. If for people of no London, you'll see it's emblazoned right on the front: UK Supreme Court and Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. So, um, who makes up the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council? The, the law lords. Okay. Right. Yeah. So basically, the same thing. Yeah. But a little different. We constituted. They have slightly different rules of procedure, etc. Okay, but back to your point. So now we've created citizenship, yeah. and now Final basically we appeal, have so we have judicial autonomy. Right. Uh, and I suppose the other aspect of the late 1940s is the letters patent. Do you want to talk about that, Phil? Uh, very quickly. Basically, the letters patent um, delegate all of the Queen's authority uh, for Can- Canadian affairs to the Governor General. Uh, now. There's controversy about how far that extends. So, for instance, would that allow currently the Governor General to appoint his or her own successor? I'd say no to that. Uh, A number of people would say yes, Mm. interestingly enough, because the the logic why we didn't have the UK Regency Act extend to Canada is that the letters patent covered it. So that's an interesting question. However, monarchists would probably be up in arms if uh, the governor general appointed his or her own successor. Right, so and in practice it is the queen that does the appointment. Right, but this is the thing. The, in practice we're still having the queen do it, mm. but you could argue that we can make it the governor general at any point in time given, like so for instance, if uh, Queen Elizabeth was incapacitated and the UK triggered their Regency Act, what would we do? We would either have to argue that the UK Regency Act extends into Canada, even though it explicitly does not say so when it was passed, but those who defend the Canadian approach to royal succession would probably argue that it does extend to Canada, which would make it even more bizarre. Or you would rely on uh, the letters patent to do it, have the governor general appoint his or her own successor. Or you could have the Canadian parliament pass a regency act, making some other member of the royal family regent for Canada. But then you get into the crazier scenario. God, well, our money would be a mess. Well, but then you would have to put on the money. You had to have the possibility. Celine Dion. <laughs> Hold on, folks. You would have the possibility of making the Governor General a permanent regent, and therefore the British monarchy would no longer have any role in Canadian affairs. So, that, anyway, but now I'm going. I'm is going that on the a different nuclear path. option? Yeah, which is troublesome, right? Because the actual tenure of the Governor General yes. it's not at pleasure appointment. <laughs> Right, and so the expectation typically is at about five years. There have been extensions, obviously, but an at pleasure appointment—the pleasure of whom the Queen, right? So you wouldn't want to have a Governor General who's sort of a permanent fixture. Yeah. So, but but it's an interesting quarter. So we 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 didn't want to do what we did with the Abdication Act with the Regency Act because we thought that the letters patent covered it. So can I just ask one more question just before we hop, skip, and jump towards um, repatriation, which is repatriation? Uh, sure. There's a building beside the Parliament building, and it's uh, the Supreme Court now. Yes. Um, what was it? It was built in the 20s, though. 
30s, I believe. The 30s. So yeah. what was it before it was the Supreme Court? It was the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court dates from, what, 1876? Oh, okay, yes. but basically it could but be But it was not the final Court of Appeal for Canada. So basically what you're talking about is in the 1940s, it actually did then become the final Correct. say. Yeah. Okay. So, and then very quickly, we have a change to the Canadian royal styles and titles. Styles and titles. Yes. So, uh, under the Saint Laurent government, we decided to change the formal title of the monarch in Canada, and this became very controversial because so we changed it from uh, uh, both of the United Kingdom and Canada. So, Her Majesty uh, in right of the United Kingdom and Canada. And at the time, there was quite a bit of controversy because, uh, again, the Tories were accusing Saint Laurent of dividing the crown, and he was saying, "No, no, no, don't worry. It's the it's still the same monarch." Uh, we, we're not doing anything. In reality, of course, we are dividing the crowns slowly but surely. So the, the interesting thing is that the royal styles and titles are changed under the Great Seal of Canada, and we provide parliamentary assent to that to a Canadian uh, proclamation, not to a British one. And this is, again, interesting because people who try and defend what the government did in 2000, or 2013 point to the fact that this is all in keeping with precedent. No, it's not in keeping with precedent. What we did in 1952-53 is not what we did. So now it's Her Majesty and Right of Canada. No, no, the United Kingdom is still in there. So this is just to show the fact that the imperial sentiment is still strong in Canada. We kept the United Kingdom in there. Okay. And now it's Her Majesty and Right of Pod. I was going to say. Yes. Yeah, we're in trouble. And, then, <laughs> and just uh, my final kind of salvo is over time, uh, we have the Pearson government coming in with new uh, honors for Canada, so the Order of Canada. We also have uh, the new Canadian flag. And interestingly, and this is kind of one that's not known as much, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau advises the Queen uh, to attend events contrary to advice from her British cabinet. She follows Prime Minister Trudeau's advice. Uh, and the other Can you give an example of what event that was? Right. So in 1973, uh, the British government advised the Queen not to attend the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Canada. Pierre Trudeau, uh, acting as her Canadian Prime Minister, nonetheless advised her to attend. Was there a certain reason for that? I'm not sure what the controversy was. I think it was the, the presence of other Commonwealth heads of government that were seen as unsavory by the British or problematic by the British. Fair enough. Yeah. So we've, we're running out of time here very quickly, but so the, the last consideration for us, so recall, as Phil suggested, that there was still the capacity on the part of the UK government to legislate, legislate with our consent and on our request in, in a way that was applicable to Canada. And so that meant that amendments to the Constitution Act of 1867, as we now call it, then called the British North America Act, required legislation in, in what was the Imperial Parliament, the UK Parliament. And so patriation is the process by which that prospect is closed off. That is, it's no longer the United Kingdom that's going to be changing our fundamental basic law anymore. And so patriation is the process of, uh, I, you, know, you, you call it repatriation, so do I from, uh, from time to time, the idea of bringing back to Canada. But it was never in Canada in the first place, that autonomy to sort of set the basic law. Uh, and so what happens, well, this is in the aftermath of the October crisis and the dispatch of the Canadian Armed Forces in response to the October crisis and FLQ, et cetera, you know it becomes a preoccupation for Pierre Trudeau to codify a constitutionalized Bill of Rights, which is not something we had had. We had had the 1960 Bill of Rights passed by the Diefenbaker government at the federal level, but that was just a statute that trumped competing statutes so long as those other competing statutes didn't, in their own turn, disallow the application of that Bill of Rights to the statute, right? And so, for example, the War Measures Act, the Bill of Rights didn't apply to the War Measures Act because the War Measures Act on its face said, oh, no rights under the War Measures Act. Uh, and the reality of, for the Bill of Rights is that the, co the courts narrowly defined it. So there were no real codified human rights or civil rights of any real significance in Canadian law, and Trudeau committed to that idea, which was deeply controversial because as soon as you accord rights to individuals, you're trenching on the capacity of Parliament to legislate in that space. It becomes a no-go area for Parliament. And so you had this huge hue and cry about how this was going to be done, which led to a conflict between the federal government and the provinces. The federal government was prepared to go alone to the United Kingdom and insist that this legislative package be enacted in the Imperial Parliament, which would have created the Chart of Rights, amongst other things, and then closed the door to any further British enactment in this space. The provinces balked at that, 
there were several reference questions that went up through the courts of appeal in several provinces that end up at the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court had to decide whether as a matter of both law and constitutional convention, it was proper for the federal government to act autonomously in seeking this legislative package from the United Kingdom Parliament. The answer from the court was there was no barrier in law, but there was a constitutional convention that said that there had to be substantial consent from provinces before you proceeded to seek this amendment package from the United Kingdom. That put the political stake in any kind of unilateral action by the federal government, which brought the parties back together to renego renegotiate what this charter and other instruments that then became the Constitution Act of 1982 would contain. And that's the story as to how we end up with instruments like Section 33 of the Charter, the Notwithstanding Clause, and that's a conversation we'll have to have for next day. Yeah. And the, the last point I'll make is that the provinces were so concerned with the amending formula and Section 33 and other things like that. Pierre Trudeau was so concerned with the Charter that there's a whole bunch of stuff that we just didn't address and we left on the cutting room floor that we're now having to deal with in the aftermath of that. Oh, no. I mean, I think every, all the provinces are very happy right now and everything was solved in 1982. Yeah. We shouldn't worry about no, it. No, but even just as an example, like when you look at how the Australians did it, so much better. All these imperial acts that we talk about, act of settlement, all these things, they brought it into their law. They added clarity. We were so busy doing so many other things that we've had to invent architecture and principles and toy houses and whatever it's else. It's keeping you guys employed, okay? So I think we should, you know, just be grateful for our constitutional mess um, uh, because otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here. Yeah. Well, and that constitutional mess means that nothing of any significance was really amended in the Constitution Act of 1867, which is why we have these peculiar powers of disallowance, for example. Mm -hmm. In principle, the United Kingdom a cabinet could disallow a federal statute. It's still on the books, right? So we end up with a constitution. As I tell my students, you can't read it literally. I have to explain it to you. And that's actually not the best system of law. Okay, then. So everything's still bad. <laughs> we're at 1982. Well, we're muddling through. And we're going to talk about uh, how we actually got our very messed up constitution next time on. Yeah. On Her Majesty and Right of Pod, we'll have a capstone episode on the constitutional framework. And then I think we're going to steer into a conversation about the operations of in constitutional space and, and, and in terms of national security, right? We want to talk about prerogative and Section 91. Also, why is Britain crazy? Defense and that sort of stuff. Why is Britain crazy? Yes. And the, the joy that is the, def the Defense Administration and orders and directives and all that good stuff. I think I fell asleep when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks very much if there's like three people left out there uh, and we will see you in a few weeks time. Sounds good. Mm -hmm.